Uh, ladies and gentlemen, hello, uh, good evening, uh, welcome here. This is, of course, uh, my friend and colleague, Mr. Andy De La Tour. Um, woo, indeed. Um, <laughs> and a woo for Miles Jupp, I think, as well, open, please. Open goodness. Yes, there you are. Goodness, I'm hardly what it's about. Now, um, please. I have here a copy of a book written by uh, Stuart Lee, uh, sort of professional miserabilist, uh, a comedian who's uh, become trapped somewhat in his own integrity. But nonetheless, this is something he wrote uh, not long ago. I was born in 1968. For my generation of London circuit stand-up comedians, there was a year zero attitude to 1979. Holy texts found in a skiff out the back of the offices of the London listings magazine Time Out tell us how, with a few incendiary post-punk punchlines, Alexis Sale, Arnold Brown, Dawn French, and Andy De La Tour destroyed the British comedy hegemony of upper-class Oxbridge satirical songs and working-class bow-tie sporting racism. Then, with the fragments of these smashed idols and their own bare hands, they built the pioneering stand-up clubs, the Comedy Store and the Comic Strip. In so doing, they founded the egalitarian Polytechnic of Laughs that is today's comedy establishment. Every religion needs a Genesis myth, and this is contemporary British stand-up comedy's very own creation story. So, ladies and gentlemen, this man, Andy De La Tour, in it from the very beginning, if myth. I may it's say. It's not a myth. Every, every syllable of that is factually accurate. <laughs> It's scientifically verifiable. <laughs> so you start in 1979, the, uh, the London comedy scene, as perhaps we know it, the world comedy scene, uh, kicks off. It, it did, in a, in a major way, with the opening of the, uh, of the comedy store. It was an extraordinary event, and uh, one, of the, one of the great things about being in on something at the beginning, which happens by complete accident, of course, is you're in on something at the beginning, is you, you don't, actually, you don't have to be good, you just have to be first. So that's, that's a big <laughs> plus. <laughs> And it was a strange because the comedy store opened, and within minutes, there's all these comedians have arrived, and it seems extraordinary. There, there must have been a lot of us just loitering in shadows, sort of aspiring comics waiting for a venue to open, and suddenly this place arrived. And, and also there was an audience right from the off. There was a, a, a big audience every Saturday night above the strip club in the, in the comedy store, and there was an audience uh, kind of hungry for something new. The sort of, you know, the sort of comic version of punk rock, I suppose. There were no rules about the comedy store in the early days, but there was an audience there from the off, and they wanted something fresh and exciting and original, and occasionally they got that. So you were fresh and exciting for approximately 11 years, and then... <laughs> and then... <laughs> it was 11 years, a long set, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's still talking, what uh, the hell? And then in I 1990. Did, yeah, I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a, a marvelous time for those uh, 11 years. Kind of things were on and off. Uh, I wasn't a stand-up comic the whole time, but there were a lot of great, great highs, as it were. I mean, not chemical highs, obviously, but a lot of good comic highs. But then in 1990, I, I kind of hung up my comedy boots. I did. Um, 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 shall I talk a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Look. Shall I? I have to ask him permission. That's so the way. That's the way all interviews work. Yeah. You yeah. Have to ask permission from your client. Sure. Um, and, and I finished on, on a kind of high, because in 1989, Rick Mayle approached me, and, and Rick was at the, at the height of his popularity, I think, in that year, and he wanted to go back on the road and do some stand-up, and he hadn't got an act. So he asked me to, if I would work with him, to, to write him an act, which I did, and we had a great time. And then he said, why don't you come out on the road? And I thought, well, why not? And it's, I was, it was going to give me access to an audience that I was never, ever going to get in my, in my own name. So we, did, we ended up doing 100 dates, in a hundred different places. There were towns I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and um, 
And it was because it he was popular, there were big audiences, 500 to 3,000, and I was never going to get access to those kind of numbers on my own. So it was a great, great thing to, uh, great thing to, great thing to have done, actually. That was a so then, but at the end of that tour, I remember the very last gig I did, and when I kind of retired from stand-up, was um, uh, we did our last gig of that tour in, of all places, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-on-Avon. And I had one of those, in the middle of my routine, I had one of those kind of acute senses of location suddenly appeared. And I was, I was mid-sentence, and I just stopped. And I, I, I looked out, there's about 1,500 people, and, and I said, here I am, I'm standing on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and I'm talking about having oral sex on an aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> or more specifically, the difficulty of oral sex on an aeroplane. When the plane's losing altitude and the oxygen masks come down. Anyway, enough of that. Um, <laughs> and at the end of that show, that was, that was, and I retired from stand-up comedy, and that was it. Done. So you just Dusted. So 20 years. Yeah. Uh, you yep. stopped. Yep. You did just, just uh, rehab, physical theatre companies, and then suddenly. Yeah, yeah. 20 years later. 20, uh, suddenly, it's 20 years later. When, I, when you get to my age, there's so many decades. It's quite scary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I spent 10 years. I, was, I went, became a writer, essentially, most of the time, and I spent 10 years uh, kind of locked in a, a kind of television cosmic black hole of series television, returning series, what the Americans call it. Do you, know, do you know, I actually wrote nine hours of drama about vets. <laughs> I know nothing about animals at all, actually. And I have no interest in animals. Would you go to parties and perk up if someone said something about having a sick dog or something like that? No, the sad thing is I would know how to make it better. <laughs> um, my only interest in animals is whether they should be kind of roasted or gently pan-fried in olive oil, really. But... Um, I ended up knowing more about hysterectomies and marsupials than I'm ever likely to need. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, nine, yes, I did 20 years. I gave up, as it were. And then what happens? You're, uh, well, you're in France? I'm in France. Well, I, yes, I ha um, I, um, I've reached a kind of plateau in my life, as they say, a kind of quiet moment, quiet period, and I, and I needed an adventure. Um, truth be told, I needed an adventure. And I suppose more specifically, I needed to just get back in touch a bit with uh, why I was in this business, this industry in the first place. I'd kind of lost sight of it a little. And I wanted to get back in touch with the comedy and the politics, and that's where it kind of started. And I thought, I want to do some stand-up comedy again. It really was kind of out of the blue moment. I, and I, I didn't want to be a stand-up comic again. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a career choice. I just thought, I want to do some, some stand-up comedy. And I thought, well, I, I don't want to do it here. I don't mean here, obviously in this giant green <laughs> Petri dish that we're sitting in. Um, uh, I thought, I don't want to do it in, uh, I don't want to do it in England. I want to do it, I want to go and do it in New York. Why not? And it was, it was, it was as kind of general and abstract an idea as that. I thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I want to do that. So you have no, you have no contacts in New York? You no. haven't done stand-up for 20 years? And no, you just no, I had no contacts at all. I had to, I, I went with my partner, uh, Susan Waldridge, who's, who's here tonight somewhere, somewhere. Um, um, she's not here to support me. She's just checking out I am where I said I was going to be this evening. <laughs> <laughs> That's pure Les Dawson. <laughs> take my wife. Take my wife. Go on, take my wife. No, anyway. <laughs> this appalling misogyny just comes out of my pores. For God's sake. Anyway, <laughs> we were taking a clifftop walk in Normandy, Susie and me, and I said to her, I've, I've got something important to tell you, and um, I want to go and do some stand-up comedy in New York. And uh, she didn't just push me over the top. 
could have done, speeded everything up. She just said, great, when are we going? And I think without that support, it would have been difficult to do, to be honest. So, that, yeah, we went. We went, to, we went to New York. And you go there to a new scene. You don't know anything about nope. the way the New York comedy scenes work. Uh, we arrived and borrowed a, a flat from a, a friend of a friend or rented it for very little. And, um, and we arrived in New York, and I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any contacts. I had no phone numbers. I had no email addresses. I mean, nothing. And I thought, oh, I'm in New York. I can do some stand-up comedy. How? Where? Who's going to give it to me? It really was starting from zero. So you go to the clubs? You Look, you well, like, what I did is I got a copy of Time Out, of course. That's what every aspiring comedian has to do. They get a copy of Time Out, and I looked at all the listings, comedy listings, and in Time Out online, and there was about 150 shows. I thought, I, I, thought, I want to go home now. I don't want to do it. I want to go get on a plane and go straight back. It's too scary. And uh, I thought, you know, if we're here for three months, it was a three-month trip, we could see two shows every night and then just about cover every venue once, which was ridiculous. You know. So I thought, well, I, I, I want to do some stand-up, but I can't, I'm not going to just present myself at some kind of upmarket touristy place like Caroline's on Broadway or the comic strip or whatever, because you know, they'd just laugh me out of the place. And I noticed um, in the listings that there were these various kind of down-market gigs, I suppose, in kind of bars mainly in the Lower East Side, in East Village and Greenwich Village and also over in Brooklyn. And uh, these were kind of $5 or $10 to get in. And they were kind of slightly more informal gigs. So I started just to go to show. I started just to go to gigs and just kind of hang out and introduce myself to people. Now, these were shows. They were, they were really interesting. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it kind of exists here, but maybe it does. These were, these were shows run by comedians themselves. There were probably about 25 of them. And the comedians, they would have their Monday night or Thursday night in a particular bar. And they would invite their friends and colleagues, and they would do an evening of stand-up. Now, although it was kind of informal, it was still, you know, these were all professional comedians. And these are the clubs where th these comedians could keep on working their stuff and try out new material and new bits wi without pressure or whatever. And also, it was very sociable. The comedians go and talk to each other because at heart we're all sad and lonely people. And, um, and, and so I just started hanging out in these places and kind of introducing myself. And... Um, they were great. I mean, to a person, they were so kind of generous and open. And once, once they'd kind of realized I wasn't a complete weirdo, you know. And, um, and I could give a quick two-minute spiel about myself and what I'd done. And thank God for the internet, because then they could Google me and see that it wasn't all completely made up. <laughs> and after about four or five weeks of just making a nuisance of myself in all these places, um, one guy very kindly took pity on me, and he, he, he offered me a spot. Okay, so you, you've written a book about, about I've written this, a book which, about. which will be on sale um, afterwards. I should, shouldn't hesitate to mention. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was in the bookshop the other day. It's right next to my books. Now, you... <laughs> Although not as long and not as funny. Oh, 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 your book, I mean. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you've written, you've written about the... Uh, I've written about... about your I, first I, have to, I have to set this up slightly. There's a lovely guy called Scott, and he runs this gig in a bar in the Lower East Side, and he calls it Rubber Bullets. I have no idea why. And this gig takes place in, a, in this kind of corridor that runs alongside the bar, shaped like a spatula. And at one end is the pool table where the comics would kind of hang out. And then there'd be the audience down the handle bit and the little raised stage. And, and, and Scott had two spotlights he would use to, to, to light up the stage. And one was green for some inexplicable reason. But, and it would seat about maybe 40 or 50 people. And uh, so he offered, me his, um, he offered me a spot. In fact, on my second or third visit to him, he said, he just came up to me and said, Andy, would, uh, would you like to do a spot next Tuesday? I went, yeah. 
And he went, uh, that's okay, uh, eight minutes, okay? Now, eight minutes is a very specific time. <laughs> it's not like around about ten minutes or five. No, eight. I thought, well, I better, I better, I better just do eight. Because <laughs> if I do nine, I'll be, you know. Yeah. And if I did well, maybe he'd give me nine. I don't know how, I don't <laughs> know how the system worked. <laughs> Next Tuesday arrived, and it was time to head downtown for my inaugural gig. I felt weirdly calm. I had nothing to lose after all, except perhaps my dignity. There was the danger, of course, that I'd be so staggeringly embarrassing and unfunny that Susie would there and then leave me. But it was a chance I had to take. In any case, she had so endorsed the whole project that I decided that if I didn't get any laughs, it would be at least 50% her fault. <laughs> we decided to go by bus. Now, there's a long bit in there now about the New York transit system, which I'm not going to read to you, but it's hilarious. <laughs> I sat on the bus in silence, slowly going through my set. It seemed less and less funny with each passing minute. I decided that it was the least funny eight minutes material I'd ever written in my life. It was worse than not funny. It was patronizing and very nearly insulting. Not only would nobody laugh, Scott would tell everybody he knew in town that whatever they do, they're not to book a middle-aged Brit who's come all this way from England just so he can talk like a prick. <laughs> Susie was quietly reading a magazine. She told me later she never read a word. She sat there trying to suppress her own nerves, made more difficult by the fact she could see me silently mouthing my routine out of the corner of her eye, waving my hands about, like some nutter talking to himself, which, let's face it, was more or less what I was. So we arrived at the UC lounge far too early, 8.15 for a 9 o'clock show. I would have killed for a large whiskey, but the rule is the same. It's the same rule Rick Mayle and I had on our year-long tour all those years ago. Only water before the gig, drink as much as we can get down us after it. Susie and I made quiet small talk in the corner of the bar, she playing John Layton to my Charles Bronson. Now, this is an obscure reference <laughs> to the scene in The Great Escape where John Layton has to persuade the claustrophobic Charles Bronson that he must use the tunnel to escape, the tunnel he himself has dug virtually single-handed. <laughs> After what seemed like an eternity, the other comedians started to amble in, Scott included. Susie and I took our drinks into the comedy corridor, squeezed past the pool table and took two empty seats not too near the stage. Scott wandered over and told me I was going on second. Fine. Get it over with, was my motto. He asked me how I'd like to be introduced. I'd never thought of this. In actor's parlance, I dried. I managed to mumble something about, well, English comic, uh, perhaps something like one of the originals on the alternative comedy scene. It sounded naff and pretentious. Suitably bathed in green, Scott kicked the show off with his customary ramble through his daily life. I have no memory of what he said, and I have almost no memory at all of the first act. He was called Dan, and at one point he did a passably good English accent in reference to a new David Attenborough series which was showing on US TV at the time. The audience, perhaps 20 strong, including the comedian's girlfriends, laughed a little, but not very much. <laughs> it was what we used to call a quiet gig. Dan finished his set and Scott ambled back onto the stage. He witted on for a couple of minutes <laughs> and then introduced me. His intro didn't sound quite as naff and pretentious as I'd feared. I stepped up onto the tiny raised stage and took the mic from Scott who stepped down. I looked out and couldn't see beyond the first six feet. The main spotlight was more or less at eye level and disconcertingly close. I could feel its heat. A stand-up set is called an act for a reason. You may not be acting a character, but you're acting nonetheless. You're acting relaxed. You're acting confident. Your stage persona is as much a construct as it is if you had a false wooden leg and a parrot on your shoulder. 
I'd planned to start my eight minutes with a couple of pleasantries about what a delight it was to be back in New York after all this time. But I didn't. I started with an improvised 30 seconds about Dan's English accent and David Attenborough. Wrong. <laughs> I hadn't quite worked out where the actual joke was, so the audience didn't get it. I smiled benignly and continued where I should have actually started. I'd probably only done a minute, but I was beginning to get a strong sense of deja vu and perhaps even a faint whiff of embalming fluid. <laughs> I smiled benignly and continued into the routine about the tea party and the midterm elections. A few punters laughed. A couple of comedians down at the pool table then laughed. Then I was on to Sarah Palin and how she might have behaved as vice president, given that she could actually see Russia from her house. They laughed some more. I began to actually relax rather than pretend to relax. I talked about Obama and how the Republicans hate him because he's black, but they don't say so. I didn't want to close on too serious a bit about Obama, so I wound up with a couple of minutes about the royal family. The wedding between William and Kate had been announced, which gave me an excuse to take the gentle piss out of many Americans' love of the British royal family. Here you are, I said. George III tried to starve you to death and now you're drooling over his great, great, great whatever's wedding. Well, how forgiving can you New Yorkers be? I mean, you know, in 50 years' time, you'll be watching Osama bin Laden's great-granddaughter get married on TV. <laughs> oh, we remember the Twin Towers. Never mind. Doesn't she look pretty? The audience lapped it up. I finished on a high and left the stage, if not quite to a deafening roar, at least to a warm and appreciative round of applause. I found Susie in the dark and sat beside her as Scott jumped up on stage to keep it going for Andy Delator. Susie squeezed my leg and handed me a Brooklyn beer. It tasted better than any beer had tasted in decades. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it seems to me it's the most extraordinary, just, just getting on that stage, the difference between not doing that gig and doing it, your last gig in Stratford, suddenly you've traveled you know, all this way across the world, it's 20 years later. I mean, that must have, what did it feel like just to be, to be the other side of that then? The beer tastes the best it's ever tasted in the world, but you, you've gone on, you know, that's such a long journey. It felt, it felt extraordinary because in one respect it felt completely familiar. It's like suddenly there's been no gap. There's been no. I just do it. And I thought, oh, this is this is. Oh yeah, this is what this is what I used to do. And it seemed very kind of normal thing to do. But at the same time, I was uh, yes, I was acutely aware that this wasn't a bit of an adventure. But I just didn't have any. Th the good thing about it is I didn't. I didn't demand of it to change my life. I didn't. I didn't go over there to be discovered or whatever. So everything was very incremental. So I just went from one gig to the next and just took one. It took one uh, each one as it came. And if it didn't work. And nothing happened, it doesn't matter, we'll come back to England and it would be, if that was the only gig I did, it, that would have been fine too, I wouldn't have worried about it. But being that far away, you weren't, you weren't more scared? No, in fact I was kind of less scared, because I was completely anonymous, I think. Also, the audiences were fantastic, well behaved. You know, three months I never heard one heckle. Not one, I was extraordinary. I mean, th there was one gig I went to where a guy was drunk and laughing in the all the wrong places, and, and, and he was escorted out. <laughs> <laughs> And I think partly because of these kind of gigs I went to, the, the, the audience, they were, kind of, they were kind of comedy buffs and comedy aficionados, and they went down there to enjoy some comedy and perhaps catching a drop in. They have this thing in the States where so, you know, every now and again a famous person would drop in and just do a 10, 15-minute set just to work some new material. Jerry Seinfeld has been known to, to drop in. I mean, I didn't see him, but I did see a couple of, of, of drop-ins which were very good. Not all of them, but uh, it was one of, the, one of the things about that. So that uh, uh, sort of politeness and stuff, how does that compare with your own 
uh, your own beginnings then, back in the comedy store in 1979. Well, chalk and cheese, really. I mean, in the early, early days of the comedy store, perhaps it carried on. No, it's not like that now. But in the early days of the comedy store, it was, it, it was absolutely sink or swim, you know. I mean, it, it, there was one show a week, right? Uh, and it started at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And, and, and so people had already been out for the evening, perhaps, and had a load to drink. And that was it. That was the only show there was. And, and in the early days of the comedy store, there was, there was actually a gong, right? And Alexi Sale, who was the regular MC, he, he had a gong there. And he would say to the audience, if you don't like any of the comedians, just shout gong. <laughs> Is that the most stupid thing I've ever heard of in my life? I mean, <laughs> he, he was, well, occasionally, you know, he'd say, well, welcome to the next act. Andy De La Tour, gong. <laughs> and you were in the wings, you know. <laughs> They had to get rid of that because the danger was they'd have a 10-minute show and everyone would go home. So, but it was still had that kind of bare pit of an atmosphere, which, which wasn't great. But it was a good, it's a quick way to learn. Quick way to learn. Uh, and were you, were you frightening? Were you not frightening. Of course you're not frightening, Andy. You're delightful. <laughs> were you, were you frightened? No, uh, you sort of. Yes, absolutely terrified on occasions. But, um, but we, yeah, we had a... We had a yeah, there was one extraordinary experience I do remember, uh, which I'm reminded of uh, about drop-ins. Oh, yeah. If I could read a little bit from my Please. book, I yeah, have yeah. about this thing. Um, um, this thing about drop-ins, um, which was big in the comedy clubs in New York, as I mentioned, and uh, uh, it links into that. But um, as, I, as I write here, sometimes a drop-ins can be a pain in the ass, quite frankly. There are a couple of comedians with something of a television profile who like nothing better than to drop in on a stand-up show completely uninvited and assume they'll be giving 30 minutes to headline the evening and spoil it as often as not. I saw a comedian well known to viewers of a successful TV sitcom drop in uninvited on two shows on two consecutive nights in two different venues. Does this man not have a life? He wasn't funny on either occasion. I haven't mentioned his name, but he's that guy from 30 Rock. What's he got <laughs> with the beard and the cap? Uh, anyway, we move on. I'll come clean. I have a small confession to make about drop-ins. I'm still smarting from an experience of 30 years ago. I was a regular at the comedy store in London within a few months of its opening. If I could, I'd like to go on first or second after the interval. The audience would be well warmed up without being too pissed to care. One Saturday night during the interval, Alexi Sale, the regular host, asked me if I wouldn't mind if he put on another act just before me, a visiting American actor who wanted to do a brief 10-minute set. As I'd never heard of the guy, who was in some obscure U.S. children's TV series, apparently, I generously agreed. Privately, of course, I'm thinking, well, how funny can a guy in a kid's TV series be in any case? Now, I have to stop here and qualify this, because it is possible to do children's television and then grow to become a stand-up comic <laughs> of international stature. And we need, of course, to look no further. Now, I, th what was your character called in that series, Miles? Uh, he was called Archie the Inventor. Archie the yeah. Inventor. I, I've, I've heard that Archie the Inventor is a, is comic genius. And I've heard that from no less an authority than my great niece, <laughs> who is four and a half and knows everything about comedy. Well, those are, those are the reviews I chase. I will cherish that. Celeste Kempinski, Miles Jupp is a genius. Well, how funny can a guy in a kid's TV series be in any case? So Alexi goes on stage. He asks the audience to put their hands together for the next act. Please, ladies and gentlemen, a visiting American actor who we're sure we're all going to enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Williams.
40 minutes later, <laughs> Robin Williams walked off the stage. The audience was a spent force. They were laughed out. They weren't going to laugh at anyone else probably for a year. <laughs> they were draped over the chairs in a state of total exhaustion. Williams had given us a comic exhibition of such energy and imagination that tour de force doesn't come close. Alexi and I and the other comedians have stood in the wings, slack-jawed, struggling to absorb the realization that stand-up comedy could reach such heights. I have never seen before or since an act that so totally overwhelmed the senses that you prayed for mercy as you screamed with laughter. When Robin, I feel I can refer to him as Robin, <laughs> came off stage, he said to me, thanks, man, I appreciate that. I can't remember if I replied. I probably just opened my mouth and gawked. But the story doesn't have a happy ending. Alexi goes up on stage immediately afterwards and with barely a pause for breath says, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the next act, comedy store regular Andy Delator. And I went on stage. I walked to the mic and I started on my rehearsed routine. Silence. Total and utter silence. But I didn't stop. I carried on for five whole minutes. I was in a kind of trance. I didn't know how to stop. There was a sea of faces before me, each with a slightly confused look, as if to say, I think there's somebody trying to talk to us. I remember a few years later going to see Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam, the film that made him famous. His character, a foul-mouthed, fast-talking army radio DJ, was the polite, slow version of what he gave us that Saturday night. <laughs> Licking my wounds the next day, I had to admit it was a privilege to have been there. <laughs> it, is a, it is a terrifying process. So it's hope yet, while I'm saying to you, Miles, from... Oh, <laughs> from <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did. I'll retire them long before then, I hope. Because um, I, I, uh, I did that with uh, in Glastonbury about seven years ago. I followed, stupidly, uh, in the, I was playing the left field tent as a result of some sort of administrative error, I suspect, um, <laughs> on a bill with uh, Tony Benn and people like that. And, and I went on. I went on. There was 800 people were originally in the audience. Uh, um, <laughs> Um, and then Mark Thomas did 40 minutes to very much his people. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it was fantastic stuff. And I was just waiting there in the wings to go on. And he finished, and they all, you know, clapped and went crazy. And then the, the compere walked straight back and I went, please keep it going for Miles Chuff. And I walked on the stage, and all I saw was the backs of 800 <laughs> people just stand up <laughs> and turn around and start drifting out. And I, didn't, I, I sort of looked at the audience, and I looked, luckily I had my friend Paul Snedden was in the wings. And I looked at him, and I, I said, what do I do? And he just went, get off. <laughs> I said, do I say anything? He goes, no, just leave. And I did. I just <laughs> said, I just well, you did the room. right thing. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. yeah. could have just stood there and just done it. Yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> See what happens. Marvellous. Well, I'm so, I'm so amazed, I suppose, by, by, by your bravery in, in going and doing something, something like what you did. I mean, stand-up is it's a frightening thing. And, how, yeah. and also, starting afresh is yes. very frightening. Well, you arrived there had, with yeah, no material. Yeah, no, well, I had to arrive, because there's no point, no point going to New York and after a 20-year gap and doing stuff about oral sex on an aeroplane. Anyway, uh, anyways, and somebody my age, I think it would just sound really tacky, to be honest, but not very, not very tasteful at all. Uh, so I, but I, I, went, I wanted to do some stuff about the, the, what was going on in the state. That was my act, I suppose, was the Brits outsider, uh, the outsider, as it were, the Brits' take on what was happening in the states. There was so much going on then. And this was, I was there, we were there through the midterm elections, and... Uh, I was devouring the news, of course, and watching it all the time and reading stuff to, to get material for my set. 
And you know, I, in some respects, I didn't even have to have to kind of write it. Some of it just kind of wrote itself. But this was the elect. There were all these kind of Tea Party people who were standing in the midterm elections, and you know, some of these people. You, we haven't really heard of some of them over here, but you, you know, you could just just quote them. That's all I need to do. Just quote them. <laughs> I mean, there was a woman. There was a woman standing in Nevada or Montana or somewhere um, for senator for the senator, and and she said, "I am not a witch. I'm just new." <laughs> and then she said, in another occasion, on the husband, she said, um, if you're married and you masturbate, you're being unfaithful. <laughs> Who needs joke writers? You know I, mean? <laughs> I mean, I could understand it maybe if you use a different hand from normal, but I mean, <laughs> there, was a, there was another candidate. I'm sorry to pick on the women candidates. It's not, there were a lot of them in the Tea Party, of course. Um, there was another a candidate called Sharon Angle. She was standing somewhere. Thank God these, these people lost, by the way. This is absolutely not a word of a lie. Sharon Angle, during the campaign, she addressed a meeting of Latino students on campus. There were 500 Latino students come to hear her talk. And she looks out and she says to them, hi, everybody. She, Do you know what? You know, to me, you could all be Asian. <laughs> this is a... Surefire vote winner, I'd have thought, that one. <laughs> so anyway, that was the source of my material. So I wanted to do stuff about Obama. It's difficult because one thing I discovered, you know, Obama, Obama isn't funny. He's not funny in the way George W. Bush is funny. Or, or even Thatcher was funny. Making jokes about Obama, it's not, I, I don't, in three months, I don't think I heard one, one good care. Not one really funny thing about Obama, but partly because they're all Democrats, the people we were playing to and performing, and most of them would like him, and that makes it slightly more difficult to be, you know, satirical or edgy or whatever, so. Do you think being an outsider gave you a certain allowance with audiences? Well, I, I, I assumed it did. I just had to take the assumption that it did, because one of the, one of the things I, I wanted to mention, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the war on terror and 9-11 and so on, and interestingly, 9-11 um, seemed to be kind of off-limits. I, I, maybe because every New Yorker knows someone who knows someone who was in the Twin Towers. I, maybe, I don't know. But th th there was a remarkable, maybe not so remarkable, but there was, a, there was a lack of political seriousness, at least in the comics I saw. And, and, and they didn't, most of the comics, even though some of them were fantastic, I have to say, but most of the comics, they didn't, they didn't address the, what I thought were the kind of main political issues of the day or maybe they did but in a very kind of soft-centered way or whatever so there were certain things I I kind of wanted to talk about and took the license of being a, a foreigner to do that you know because what's the worst they could do you know right to shoot me obviously <laughs> in New York no no but did you find audiences that were you know around the city that were more more forgiving of that sort of material sort of you? there was a, there was very they did vary from place to place there was a one one gig I wanted to do very badly when I started to sorting out, seeing what the different types of venues were. There was, there was a place I, I, I kind of honed in on, which I really liked, it was in, in Brooklyn. And uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a regular Sunday night gig ran, run by a, a quite a well-known comic, a brilliant, brilliant uh, black comedian called Hannibal Barres. And he had his Sunday night show. And he would always have several black comics on the bill, um, not, not as it were for a political statement. They were just his friends. And there were a lot of fantastic black comedians in, in New York. And, and what was also interesting about this gig was probably 30, 35% of the audience was black, which even, even for New York was, was, was very, very unusual. So this, and there was a great atmosphere in place, and this was a gig I, I wanted to do, and uh, towards the end of my stay, 
Hannibal inviting me to, 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 to do a spot there. And uh, can, I, can I read the story of that night? Have Thank we got you. time? You're looking eagerly at the... You, you, you've definitely got time to do this. I've got time for this time. I'll do, it, um, I'll do it in double quick time. No, I won't. I'll do it in time of tape. It was called the Knitting Factory, this place, and it was a music venue, but there was this big, big bar area at the front. So the gig was free to get into for the punters, uh, but, but it, was, it was packed, packed with people. As I strode the quarter of the mile from the Metropolitan Avenue station to the Knitting Factory in the horizontal freezing rain, it was winter by now, I wondered how the gig would go. I'd done five different spots in five different venues, but I hardly felt as though I'd cracked New York. If anything, the experience had reminded me just how difficult it is to be funny, especially if you're trying to say something interesting at the same time. When I walked into the knitting factory at about 8.45, I'd learned by now not to be hours early for a gig. The place was already full. All the seats were taken and most of the standing room too. I made my way to the bar for my customary glass of water and then to the dark corner where the other comedians were beginning to assemble. Even though I'd seen dozens of comics over the past weeks, I didn't recognize anyone, and I was disappointed not even to see Hannibal himself. The diminutive but quite chunky Carolyn Castilia asked me if I was Andy from London and told me she was comparing the evening as Hannibal couldn't make it. She offered me third spot, which I was happy to take. I was desperate for a beer and wouldn't have to hang on longer than about 40 minutes. As I stood in the corner waiting for the show to begin, listening to the hubbub of rising expectation, I had one of those weird, out-of-body experiences. I should have been sat on my sofa back in London watching Match of the Day 2. <laughs> All right, there's a five-hour time difference, but give me a bit of poetic license here, please. But instead, I was in a packed Brooklyn bar, waiting to go on stage to make all these people laugh. I had chosen to do this. Nobody had made me. I had given up stand-up comedy decades ago. What the hell did I think I was doing? I suddenly got very nervous and felt totally alone. Susie wasn't there to hold my hand or preferably go on stage and apologize that Andy from London wouldn't be appearing because he was having a nerves-induced out-of-body experience in the corner. <laughs> well, suddenly the show started. Carolyn went on stage and kicked things off. To say her act was in your face doesn't capture it. She dives straight into a riff about motherhood and desertion. Sometimes you meet some motherfucker and the nicest fucking thing he does in 10 fucking years is give you a motherfucking baby. Am I right, bitches? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn's white, in fact, but she hails from Harlem and she knows this audience. Damien Lemon, the first of three black comics on the bill, knows his audience too. Laid back and ferociously funny, Damien muses on New York street life. All everyone talks about is apps. Apps with a GPS that tell you where the nearest pizza shop is in a three-block radius, or the nearest gas station. I think I need an app to help me find my father. <laughs> I mean, that would help, right? <laughs> you kind of take your phone, you tap in, two minutes later, a guy comes up, hey, you must be Gerald's son. <laughs> my turn on stage came up soon enough, and Carolyn introduced me generously as a friend from London. A pioneer of the UK comedy scene, you're going to love this guy. Please give it up for Andy Delator. Go, go, go. Pioneer, I like that. My nerves had mostly disappeared by the time I stepped onto the tiny stage. By now, well-worked routine about the tea party, dinosaurs, Sarah Palin and the rest went down reassuringly well. References to Obama were all instantly approved, but I wasn't being anything like as critical as I ought to have been. I decided to try out some new thoughts about 9-11. If they didn't work to a friendly liberal Brooklyn crowd, they weren't going to work anywhere. When I arrived in New York, I began, it was the first time I'd been here since before 
You know, I'm in the cab coming in from JFK, and the beautiful Manhattan skyline comes into view, and the first thing I notice, no Twin Towers. And then I realize, you know, that beautiful skyline, you know what? It's prettier without them. There was, a, like now, a free, a murmuring <laughs> laugh and a certain frisson in the air. It's like they're asking, where is this guy going with this exactly? <laughs> but I persevered. I mean, let's be honest, they were hideous, right? Typical 1970s office design. And they must have been cheap, too, otherwise they'd have settled for one. Some last, but still no chorus of disapproval. You know what I heard? I continued, you know one of the 19 hijackers? He's an architecture student. As he's flying into the South Tower, he's going, you know, one day they'll thank me. <laughs> there was a moment's silence, but then a huge laugh, mainly from the people at the back. One or two of the people whose faces I could clearly see near the front were distinctly unamused. A woman whose expression I can still see now looked at me as if to say, 3,000 people died that day, and you talked to us about crappy architecture. She probably wasn't thinking anything of the sort. It just shows how paranoid we comics can get. I clawed back some respect for the short piece to finish. And they were Saudi terrorists, right? So you invaded Afghanistan, and then Iraq, and then Pakistan, and next up Iran. I mean, don't they have maps in the State Department? <laughs> A good laugh from most of the crowd, and I moved on to comic terra firma about the royal family. So I wrapped my set of the Knitting Factory with the last disdainful reference to the forthcoming royal wedding between William and Kate, and stepped off the stage to a generous response. It was a good 10 minutes, but not quite as good as I'd hoped. Perhaps I'd been expecting too much. The audience was soon laughing loudly at the next comedian, and I was relishing the first of my two free beers, my wages. <laughs> then I relaxed, smiled, and myself told myself, look, the gig was fine. You did it. That's the important thing. If someone had only a year ago told me that I'd be doing a stand-up gig in Brooklyn, New York, I'd have thought them deranged. But I wasn't at home watching Match of the Day 2. I was here, surrounded by people I didn't know but felt close to nonetheless. And when two young black law students came up to me afterwards, said how much they'd enjoyed my act and engaged me in a 10-minute conversation, I think I appreciated their response more than any smidgen of praise I've ever received. It was absolutely freezing when I left the knitting factory to walk back down Metropolitan Avenue to the subway, but I just didn't care. I've actually read most of the book. You don't need to buy in that. No, no, it's not, not true. There's a bit about the transit system you need to <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this wonderful book that Andy has written about this uh, extraordinary trip is on sale, and he will indeed be uh, signing copies uh, immediately. Do you know where you're going to be signing yes, these yes, copies? Yes, it's in the upstairs, you know, the upstairs bar part of, of, of here, of Cotter's Row. They're going to be up there in 90 seconds. That's right. What's soon to be known as the Delator Bar, I believe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't remember which of you it's named after, but <laughs> um, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much indeed. Andy Delator! Yeah.